Hey, Bridgetown, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19 as we continue our teaching series through Matthew's Gospel. We left off last week at the end of chapter 18 with Christian Dawson, who's a new addition to our pastoral team. Let's pick it up in chapter 19, verse 1, and read down to verse 10. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea on the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate." Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Here's a picture of T and I on our wedding day. Coming up on 20 years ago, she was just 19. I was barely 21. We fell in love when she was still in high school. Her parents asked us to wait to marry until I was 21. And so we set a date for the first Saturday after my 21st birthday which tells you all you need to know about my particular psychosis. We had no idea what we were getting into. We had no idea that at a statistical level, the younger you marry, the more likely you are to divorce. In fact, we had a ton of friends kind of tie the knot at the same time, and we're one of the only couples who are still together. We had no idea that your prefrontal cortex doesn't develop all the way until at least age 22, more like 24, 25 for a guy, which means our brains could literally not grasp just how different we were, how different our families of origin were, our ethnic backgrounds were. Nobody really told us, or more than likely they did, and we just did not listen because we were in love. Our body was awash with intense feelings of euphoria and the gravitational pull of sexual desire. But, comes as no surprise, a year or two in, those intense feelings started to die down. And we began to wake up to the reality that we were two very different people in a marriage. I remember one day we were running errands and we were driving in the car together and the radio was on and an advertisement came on for eHarmony.com, which was the new thing at the time. And at the end, the psychologist, I forget his name, but he had a little one-liner. He said, opposites attract and then attack. And I just remember this awkward silence in the car as the reality of his maxim kind of hit home in our life. At the seven-year mark, and the seven-year itch is a thing, like there's data behind that. My theory, I have no idea if it's right, but my theory is you spend the first seven years of your marriage 
trying to change your spouse to fit your ego ideal. That's about how long you can suspend reality and live in the illusion of coming change until kind of at some point you realize, no, this is actually who they are and who I am. And then either you go the route of divorce or you go on a long, hard journey together. But I remember seven years in, the band Elbow, which was one of my favorite bands at the time, came out with their Seldom Seen Kid record. And I just remember hearing that line from the single, I've been working on a cocktail called Grounds for Divorce. Oh, 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 if you remember that. And I just remember hearing that for the first time and it's striking this deep chord in my spirit. In the music video, the lead singer is in this like CD bar and he's just hitting the table with the snare drum, boom, 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 just with full of anger and spite. And most of Elbow's music was really like melodious and pretty, but not that song. And I just remember feeling all of that angst in my own body, feeling like a failure as a husband, feeling like what in the world did we get ourselves into? I was a follower of Jesus and I was well aware that of the text that we're about to work through that basically, not to give it away, said divorce is not a valid option for a disciple of Jesus. But does that mean I'm stuck in an unhappy marriage until I die? That same year as the Elbow song, the elders sent T and I away to kind of a long weekend of intensive therapy in Colorado. And it was not a silver bullet, but it was a turning point in our relationship together. But over the next few years, I had to undergo a radical overhaul in my vision, not just of what marriage is, but of what marriage is for. And I came to realize that my vision of marriage was not based on Jesus' teachings as they come to us in scripture. It was a mishmash of Freud and Hollywood and Portland hedonism and the sex revolution and Western autonomy. The passage that we are about to work through did far more than keep T and I from a divorce. It, or really Jesus' vision of marriage in it, saved our marriage. And we need Jesus' vision of marriage now more than ever before. In the time of COVID-19, you know, you all know the saying, a marriage is only as good as its least emotionally healthy member. And none of us are all that emotionally healthy right now. I'm sure not. Be grateful you don't live with me right now. We're living through a global pandemic, an economic depression, political polarization, 80 plus days of protests and riots in our city, not to mention the demonic assault over the last few decades on marriage and family and the spirit of Jesus. We're all just under enormous emotional strain. None of us are at our best and we need all the help that we can get. You know, we did the marriage course a few months ago and we plan to run it again this fall. And we were expecting, you know, 30 or 40 couples. If we were lucky, 300 couples were there, like for the entire time we need help. And for the many of you who are single and who are right now thinking, okay, here comes the marriage talk, and now online, you don't have to get up and walk out, you can just do something else. Now, first off, we're covering singleness next week, don't miss it. But now is the time to reckon with Jesus' teachings on marriage and on divorce, not later. And one last thing to preface before we get into the text. If you are at a low point in your marriage, and you are not alone right now if that is the case, 
Or if you've been through a divorce and this is a tender subject for you, or you are a child of divorce and there's a deep pain there, please know that we love you and our love is a fraction, if that, of God's love for you. And let's explore Jesus' teaching on marriage and on divorce together, but from the safe place of God's compassionate love. Okay, verse one. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Okay, two pieces of backstory. First, the Pharisees are referring to a raging debate in first century Israel over how to interpret a cryptic passage in Deuteronomy 24. Here's the passage. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent, or that can be translated something shameful about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her away from his house. And if after she leaves his house and becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her away from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, a lot could be said about this passage that we don't have time for. It goes against the grain of our late modern egalitarian sensibilities. Actually, it was way ahead of its time. There's nothing like it in the ancient world. Its purpose was to protect women in a patriarchal culture where easy divorce was commonplace. You could just kind of throw a woman out on the street to protect her from harm. By Jesus' day, the debate was over how to interpret that line if he finds something indecent. What exactly does scripture mean by something indecent? That's really kind of vague and opaque. There were two schools of thought from two of the most famous rabbis right before Jesus' era. The school of Shammai, who was the more conservative of the two, said something indecent was referring to adultery and nothing else. And Shammai said you can only divorce your spouse if they cheat on you because in doing so, they kind of rupture the one flesh union. But the school of Hillel, who was the more progressive or liberal of the two rabbis, said it's for, quote, any and every reason. Scholars have even found that turn of phrase used here by Matthew for any and every reason on divorce certificates from around the time of Jesus. Hillel literally said, quote, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. Hey, dinner is late. I mean, talk about that level. Rabbi Akiba, who was a disciple of Hillel, said if he found another fairer or more beautiful than she. As you can imagine, Hillel's view was the dominant view in Jesus' day. Even though it was a very religious culture, divorce was just as common as it is then as it is now in our secular culture. But unlike today, divorce was not a two-way street. Notice that language, he may divorce her. It was a full-on patriarchal culture, and it was much harder for a woman, not impossible, but much harder for a woman to divorce a man than for a man to divorce a woman. And Jesus is fierce in his advocacy for women. 
Second piece of backstory before we read kind of the next line is in one verse there, we read that Jesus left Galilee and went into a region called Perea, which is in the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, who earlier in Matthew in chapter 14, which was forever ago for our church, but go back and reread it, killed Jesus' cousin, John the baptizer, when he called out Herod for his divorce and subsequent remarriage to his sister-in-law. Yes, that's weird. Meaning, the Pharisees aren't asking a question in pursuit of the truth. They are asking a question to, quote, test Jesus, meaning to set him up for failure because it's a lose-lose for Jesus. If he sides with Shammai, that would make him both unpopular with kind of the crowd who would prefer an easy divorce culture, and it would draw the ire of Herod. Now, notice what Jesus says next, verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator, quote, made them male and female. It's a quote from Genesis 1 and said, quote, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis 2. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Notice what Jesus does here. He goes back to what theologians call creational intent, meaning to the creator's vision and design for human flourishing. Ethicists point out that any kind of ethic, in particular about marriage or sexuality, which is the dominant kind of ethical debate of our day, or at least it was, it's mostly kind of at the popular level moved on. Any kind of debate is based on an anthropological teleology, meaning a view of what an anthropos or a human telos or end goal is. Before you can ask, is this behavior or relationship or form of sexuality right or wrong, first you have to take a step back and ask, what is a human being? What is human sexuality? What is it for? What is marriage for? What is a human being itself for? The yelling back and forth in the culture wars over human sexuality is between people, you know, kind of who hold to a traditional view and not just Christians, but all from all over the world and those who hold to the more secular progressive view, which is far more common in our city. The yelling back and forth and the ire at each other and how could you think you're a bigot, you're a whatever, is because both sides come to the conversation with a very different set of assumptions about what a human being even is, much less what marriage and sex and life itself is for. If you are a secular Darwinian materialist and you follow the logic of that to its kind of conclusion, then life is at best a glorious accident. There's no creator, therefore there's no creational intent. There's just survival of the fittest and evolutionary blind chance, just survival and pleasure. That's kind of the human story. In that kind of a worldview, humans are just animals with an extra large prefrontal cortex. Sex is just a biological coupling for the propagation of our quote species. Marriage or even gender itself is just a social concept that we evolved into to early on to protect women and children from the saber-toothed tiger and to kind of survive in a world that's overpopulated or better said that some people believe is overpopulated. Marriage and sex no longer serve any purpose really since we have survival now. They no longer really serve a purpose beyond pleasure. In a world without meaning or purpose from God, 
Hedonism becomes the dominant quasi-religion. In that worldview, and it is a worldview, it masquerades often as kind of the cold hard truth or objective reality, but it's not. It's an interpretation of the data points of science and history and the human experience. In that worldview, the idea of marriage as a covenant for life between one man and one woman which is really all about family, that idea is nonsensical at best. What if you're not in love anymore? What if it doesn't work out? What if you're a sexual minority? What if, what if, what if? Not only that, but in a culture like the one we live in, the host culture that is our city, where you know most people think the greatest good in life is to feel happy, People no longer ask, how do I become good, but how do I become happy? And people think that the path to a happy life is freedom as defined or really redefined as the ability to do whatever the heck you want. Then the greatest evil in that kind of an ethical calculus is any kind of constraint on your freedom that that sounds not just weird or nonsensical, that sounds immoral. But if that's not the true story of reality, if there is a creator and there is creational intent and we're not animals, we're image bearers of God created out of a beautiful mind to image the Trinitarian community of self-giving, generative, other-centered love. If love is by definition a form of constraint, if we're created male and female as engendered bodies and our gender itself that we are born with comes with roles and responsibilities even in God's good world, and if marriage was designed by God himself to set us free over a lifetime of the egoic operating system where everything is about my survival and my pleasure, I want, I need, in order to form us through the constraint of a lifelong covenant into people who image the agape or the self-giving love of God. And if sexuality is far more than play for grown-ups, if it's the fusion of two souls and it's the regular renewal of the lifelong covenant, then the idea of marriage and sex and even gender that we find from Genesis all the way through to Jesus is not only sensical, it is, I think, stunning in its beauty. But not only is Jesus' view of marriage at odds, it's a very far cry from that of the culture of our day, it was, it sounds traditional to us, it was radical for his day, it was just as at odds with the culture of first century Israel. It calls into question both the secular progressive view, which is Darwinian and hedonistic, and the traditional view of marriage and sexuality, which is often very patriarchal and not egalitarian at all. Which is why the Pharisees ask the follow-up question. Take a look again at verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Meaning if Genesis 1 and 2, if that's creational intent, if that's God's vision for marriage and divorce is not, what is Deuteronomy 24 doing in the Bible? Verse 8. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Notice the change in language from command to permit. Jesus is saying, whoa, whoa, back up the train. Pay close attention to the text. Moses' divorce here is not a command. It's a concession. 
The rabbis had long taught that there are positive and negative commands in the Torah, positive meaning commands that lay out God's vision for human flourishing, and negative meaning commands that tell you what to do when people sin or I sin or you sin and fall short of God's vision of human flourishing. For Jesus, divorce is what the rabbis called a concession command. The law in Deuteronomy was God's attempt to protect a woman from abuse in a patriarchal culture. It was not God's vision for human flourishing. And notice Jesus' language, right? Moses permitted you because your hearts were hard. This is very important. For Jesus, the only thing a marriage cannot survive is hardness of heart. Marriage can survive tragedy or loss or a chronic illness or a child with special needs. It can even survive something as tragic as an affair if there is repentance, true, genuine repentance, and on the other side, reconciliation. But it cannot survive, even if there's none of that, it cannot survive a heart that is closed off to another and in doing so is closed off to God because the two are intertwined and closed off to the impulse of the Spirit in our soul toward love and forgiveness. He goes on, verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, or the word there in Greek is porneia, where we get the word pornography, but it doesn't mean that per se. It means kind of anything outside of the marriage covenant, and marries another woman, commits adultery. New Testament scholar Frederick Bruner in his commentary on Matthew writes this about verse 9. Whenever Jesus says, but I say to you, or another translation is, amen, I say to you, we are in the place of Jesus' deepest convictions and in Jesus' mind of God's highest will. And God's highest will is that a husband and a wife be utterly faithful to each other for life. Moses, under duress, permits divorce, but Jesus, by a remarkably direct authority, commands no divorce, and Jesus is Lord. Now, Jesus' statement here is very black and white, and it raises all sorts of questions. Is this hyperbole or not? Is adultery or you know, sexual immorality the only grounds for divorce? Are there others not on Jesus' list here? Uh, what about Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 7, where he seems to name abandonment by your spouse as another valid reason? What about abuse? That's the question we all kind of ask at an intuitive level. And down through church history, there has been a running debate with no consensus, especially on divorce and the remarriage aspect of that. Let me give you, there are basically four views on divorce and remarriage. Let me give you them in order from kind of the most conservative to the most progressive. First one is that if you go through a divorce, even if you are not at fault per se, though if you're in a marriage, you know there's rarely, it does exist in theory, but rarely a situation where there's a guilty and an innocent. There's always a mixed bag in marriage. But even if you go through something like that, where you're not at fault for the affair or whatever, the divorce, you cannot remarry. You must bear the pain of your betrayal by your spouse with a kind of joy as a signpost to the kind of life that is possible when you live in the kingdom of God. This is still the official Catholic view. Second is you can, you can remarry as a follower of Jesus if and only if your spouse was unfaithful to you because in doing so, they tore the one flesh union. But that is the literally the one and only reason. 
Third view is you can remarry for other reasons besides just adultery that at an effect are serious enough, it, it does something to kill a marriage, such as the example 1 Corinthians 7 of abandonment, or most would argue abuse. And the last view is that all divorce is sin, or at least it's the byproduct of sin, but God, the good news is, or the gospel is, forgives sin. You will still face the consequences of your sin, if not from God, from your family torn apart, from the pain in your own like body and physiology of the rupture of that one flesh union. But whatever, whether the sin is done by you or to you, God is compassionate. And if you've done the hard work of repentance and reconciliation, and very few people have even made an attempt at that, but if you do, and for some reason your, your ex-spouse will just still not have it, will not even hear from you, will not remarry you, then after a time of healing, you can remarry just under the compassion of God and still with his blessing. Now, whichever of the four views is right, and Bridgetown doesn't have an official position per se, the basic sense of Jesus' teaching is the same. If I were, divorce my, if I were to divorce my lovely wife, who's going to come up here in just a minute, just because, you know, we're not a good fit or opposites attract and then attack or, you know, we've grown apart or I just don't love her anymore or irreconcilable differences, which are not a thing in scripture or pretty much any other reason than she cheated on me and no matter what I say or do, she will not repent and will not reconcile even after years or months of me hard at work. And if I were to, well, say I'm done, and then I were to go to marry somebody else a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, in God's eyes, that is no different than if I were to go out tomorrow and have an affair. It is a violation of God's vision for human flourishing. And even if T were to cheat on me, and she would never do this if you know my lovely wife, I mean, she's married to me, of course she would never do that. Just kidding. But even then, God's heart is for me to forgive. It is not on accident that Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce comes right after his parable on how we are to forgive 70 times seven. What else is marriage but a lifelong commitment to forgive over and over, to keep your heart not hard, but open and soft in love? Which is why, verse 10, the disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. That's, that's really funny. If you don't chuckle right now, you're missing the point. Recently, I was chatting with a 20-something single dude who had just read Tim Keller's Meaning of Marriage, um, which is an, it's my favorite book on marriage. My wife and I just read it again last summer. I love it. Whenever I officiate a wedding, I require the young couple to read through the book before the wedding day. And I said, oh, that's great. I love that book. And he said, and he was like really serious and somber. He said, I don't know, man, it was good, but it, it kind of made me not want to get married. And it's that same kind of idea when you begin to grasp the reality, the weight, the beauty of Jesus' vision. And this really is for life. For the disciples who were young Jewish men who kind of took the right or the option to divorce for granted, ah, it doesn't work out, divorce her. The idea of, no, 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 you, you make a promise for life. There's a weight to that that was scary for the men. 
And Jesus goes on to lay out an even more radical idea that we'll cover next week in his era, that a single person can actually flourish and thrive in the kingdom of God. Bethany will cover that next week. But for today, let's just take a step back before my wife comes up to end. Jesus' view of marriage and divorce calls into serious question not only the vision and values of his day, but of ours as well. Just a few thoughts. Number one, for Jesus, marriage is a covenant, not a contract. Take a look at the vows from my wedding day to tea. Will you have, the pastor asked me, my dad actually it was, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife? Will you love her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health? in joy and in sorrow, to be to her a true and devoted husband, forsaking all others as long as you both shall live. Do you so promise? When I said, outside my now in-law's house in their beautiful kind of backyard, when I said before God and before my family and my friends, I do, I made a promise, not only to my wife, but to God and to the community around us. I made a vow. Notice that is not a contract. There's no exception clause in there. There's no if or there's no if at all. It's just I promise. There's no prenup. There's no out. It is a covenant that I am held to by integrity no matter what does or does not come. If she is healthy or, in, as in our case, beset by a chronic illness, if we are a good fit or more of opposites attack, attract and then attack, if our life together is easy or hard, or even if she does not hold up her end of the promise, either way, it's a promise, it's a vow. To break that covenant is to tear apart the fabric of integrity that runs straight through my soul and yours. But the dominant view of marriage in the West, including for many of us who follow Jesus, is no longer that of a covenant, but of a contract. In a contract, you know, two parties agree on a working relationship as long as it is mutually beneficial. But in a covenant, you give up your freedom in faith, that true freedom is not the lack of constraint, but it is rather the right kind of constraint. And that inside the confines of a covenant, we become the kind of people who are actually free to love. A contract is based on the egoic operating system, right? I use that language on a regular basis. What I want, what I need. A covenant is based on agape or self-giving love to put the good of another ahead of your own. And a covenant is the one and only relational container that has the strength and stability to hold the raw power of human sexuality and all of its fierceness and its fragility, which is so much more than just a biological release. It is a one flesh union to hold that and to transform it in the crucible of a covenant love, to transform it from eros to agape, from lust to love, from a desire to take from another person to a desire to give to another person, from a grasping for control to a surrender to intimate love. Without a covenant, human sexuality becomes just 
what the reformers called incurvatus in se in Latin, or sin turned in on itself. Our egoic narcissism and our unchecked desire become the prison that travel with us wherever and with whomever we go. This is why marriage and family, if you choose that route, and not all of us do, Jesus did not, but if you do, it's the hardest thing that most of us will ever do. They don't say this at the wedding day, they should because they force us to break out of the prison of ourself and to, over time, become, as we follow Jesus and stay together, people who are free to love. Secondly, for Jesus, marriage is companionate, not passionate. Now, that language isn't from Scripture. It's from the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Happiness Project, where he writes about what he calls the myth of modern love, which is based on four false assumptions. One, true love is passionate love that never fades. Two, if you are in true love, you should marry that person. Three, if love ends, you should leave that person because it was not true love. And four, if you can find the right person, you will have true love forever, along with the unicorn at the end of the rainbow. He calls this myth biologically impossible, end quote. The human brain is not capable of generating a passion like that for more than a few years at best. For most people, it's more like six months. Doctors Elaine Burschild and Elaine Waster define passionate love as a, quote, wildly emotional state in which tender and sexual feelings, elation and pain, anxiety and relief, altruism and jealousy coexist in a confusion of feelings, also known as Hollywood, at least back in the day. You fall in passionate love. You are hit by Cupid's arrow and it's just out of control. And they define companionate love as the affection we feel for those with whom our lives are deeply intertwined. It's the bond that grows over years of tender care, interdependence, shared experience, and trust. At a neurobiological level, passionate love is like a drug. In fact, in brain scans, it's very similar to heroin and cocaine. But like a drug, not only is it addictive and therefore destructive, it's also beset by the law of diminishing returns. You can only stay high for so long. Despite this, our culture is in love with love, meaning passionate love, but it is a chasing after the wind. Hate has this great graph on the two types of love over time. Six months into a relationship, you know, passionate love is up and down, it's tumultuous, but it, it's strong, and compassionate love is more weak. But if you stretch the time scale from six months to six decades, it is a very different picture. The kinds of marriages that we look up to have passion in them. Yes, don't misunderstand me, but they are far more a companionate kind of love. My therapist calls it old person love, where you see Jesus behind the veneer and the sin and the flaw and the humanity of another person. And you see Jesus rather than your ideals, your fantasies, the desire to be held, and the pain of wanting itself goes away. If you know anything about attachment theory, it's, it's attachment love. In fact, R.T. Franz, who's a top New Testament scholar, translates Genesis 2 here in Matthew 19 as, quote, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and attach to his wife. 
In the world of therapy, the leading book on marriage right now is Hold Me Tight by the founder of EFT, or Emotionally Focused Therapy. And the basic thesis is that we, what we crave in a marriage is a recreation of the attachment love we had from our parents, specifically from our mother. We crave unconditional love, just to be, to be loved and held and just as we are, to feel safe in the arms of another. Psychologists who study romantic love note that young couples often manifest similar mannerisms to a mother and her child. They stare into each other's eyes, they stroke each other's cheek, they coo at each other, they talk in a childlike voice, they spend hours and hours in each other's arms, they feel a deep affection for each other. There is a deep ache in all of us for that kind of experience of love as we are. Marriage is, at one level, the search for a mother. It's the search for someone to hold you, to love you as you are, to accept you, to keep you safe, to soothe you and comfort you when you are scared, to keep you company and to fill the void inside of loneliness. But no marriage, I don't care who you marry, no marriage can live up to that ideal. I read one study recently that said, a marriage, even if it is healthy, cannot satisfy more than 25% of your emotional needs, not to mention spiritual needs. Hence, the fallout of divorce, 50% is like the statistic goes, something about half of all couples end in divorce. Now, other marriages don't go the route of divorce. They go, and this is from Dan Allender and Tremper Longman's excellent book, Intimate Allies, in one of three kind of directions, contempt, they just turn against each other and, and love somehow over a number of years becomes a kind of hate for another even if it's a quiet, seething kind of resentment. Two, distance, kind of a roommate love, kind of just everything's at a surface level and you're not really that close and it's more, you know, functional. Or denial, hey, it's all great, I love my marriage, it's wonderful. Do you ever meet people, and Christians, in all honesty, are often worse than other people about this, and you try to talk to them about marriage and how it's good, but man, is it hard, but they don't play ball. I don't know, they just act as if marriage is heaven on earth. Now, sometimes they really do have a phenomenal marriage. And my point here is not to spark cynicism. Or other times they just have a really sunny personality. I do not have that at all. But often they are just in denial, which is their defense mechanism of choice against shame or fear or betrayal or disappointment. Denial works incredibly well for a lot of people, at least for the first half of life. But is there another option to divorce on one hand and contempt, distance, and denial on the other? Yes, it is to make your marriage a long obedience in the same direction toward companionate or attachment love. No other person can satisfy all of your emotional, much less your spiritual needs. To look for that in a spouse is to turn them into a de facto God onto which you project all of your narcissistic desire. It will do nothing but dehumanize them and demoralize you. But they can be a companion for the spiritual journey as your soul makes its way back to union with God and along that road is transformed into a person of agape. Finally, last thought, 
Marriage is not the be-all, end-all. We'll talk more about this next week, but for Jesus, you can live a happy, healthy life as a single person or as a sexual minority. The life and teachings of Jesus, that's easy for me to say, right? But Jesus said it. And Jesus was single and never had sex. His life and his teaching call into question the worship of marriage, so common in the West and in particular in the church, and even more so the worship of sex, which is even more common in our city. In our city, you know, sex is not just an ideology, for sure it's that. It's a soteriology. It's a, it's a means of salvation. It is a quasi-religion that people look to for identity and belonging and meaning and purpose in life and a community to be a part of and the love, the un conditional love that we all ache for. And listen, sex is good, but it is not that good. Ronald Rollheiser, who is a celibate Catholic priest who has never, to my knowledge, had sex either, has some of the most profound writings on sexuality I've ever come across. Whenever I read his take, I, I just am blown away. How does this 60-something celibate Catholic priest have a better working grasp of sexual desire than I do as a husband of 20-something years. He would say, and go read his stuff, there's a long line of this thought, by the way, at least as far back as Augustine in the fourth century, that sex is a craving for something so much deeper than an orgasm or pleasure. It is a craving for communion and for creativity, to commune with another, to literally be naked and unashamed, and creativity to, to fill the world up with more life, to leave the world better than you found it. And for Jesus, you don't need an orgasm or even a spouse to fulfill that desire. In fact, you can live that life with Jesus in the kingdom of God. So to, that's all I have to say. To end, you know, T and I were... You have to live this stuff before you can stand up here and teach it. And I'm not here to say, like, I have the best marriage of all time and do the three things and you'll turn out great like we turned out great. That's not our story. But we're almost 20 years in. Three kids later, we're still together, even in the middle of COVID-19. And we were chatting about this a few nights ago. And what she was saying was just so wise and profound. I asked her if she would just come and finish the teaching for us. Here's my lovely wife. My favorite thing about marriage is the safe place that it provides to be vulnerable. I've been married to John Mark for 19 years now. Marriage is messy. It's not always romantic and it can often feel disappointing. There's so much romanticism around marriage and relationships in our culture. I've seen friends leave spouses in an attempt to experience falling in love all over again. We're in love with being in love but the reality is that love changes over time in marriage. It morphs into something much more precious and deep. John Mark and I come from different cultures, married crazy young, and are complete opposites in personality. Marriage has never come easy for us. But now, after 19 years, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I've learned the value of our life together and that it really is a gift. But truth be told, when we were first married, there was so much idealism that clouded our view of what marriage was for. Since then, and over the years, I've learned that I need to let go of the idealism that crushes the joy of my reality. And here's the thing, and I feel like it's really important to say, social media is a place that feeds the idealism that we need to let go of. 
When I post a picture of John Mark and I hugging on social media, it looks like we're the perfect couple, that we have no problems, that it's just ideal. But it feeds into a narrative that's not only not true, but is also, I think, damaging. I say that to say this. If you're married and you feel like it's not all that you'd hoped for, if looking at pictures on social media makes you think that something else is better out there, please consider adjusting your perspective. Marriage was never meant to make us happy or satisfy our souls, but it was meant to be a gift, a place where you figure out life in all of its messiness together, where you can fight and make up, have the best and the worst sex of your life, act like a total tool and find that you are still loved and chosen by your partner when you've made your vows because you really meant them. We've had some rough seasons, but we've had some sweet ones too. Those of you who are in a rough season right now, hang in there, hold fast to your vows. Years from now, you will see the fruit of that struggle and sticking it out. And in the safety and intimacy of a tried love, your marriage will become a place of refreshment and a safe haven in the midst of an uncertain world. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I just invite you into this space and into every space of the people who are listening right now. I pray, Lord, that where there is despair and disheartened people, that your peace and your hope would meet them in that space. I pray, Lord, that you would meet people in the reality of their stories right where they're at. Lord, if you are a God who can raise the dead, then you can raise a broken marriage. You can heal, you can heal wounded hearts and you can even soften hardened ones. So Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would give stamina and hope and perseverance and even like a dogged determination to press through what is hard and to stick it out and to be true to people, for people to be true to their vows. Lord, would you bring redemptive renewal to so many marriages, even in this time of uncertainty and sadness all over the world. I pray that marriages would become like little safe havens in the midst of so much chaos. We thank you, Lord, that you are capable of doing this. We thank you, Lord, that we have a choice in it and that we can choose to partner with you for the redemption of even what seems unredeemable at times. Lord, because that's just the kind of God you are. So we just thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.